Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello and welcome to the final Askell Leadership Podcast of the year and it really is a bumper issue. We talked to Professor Alma Harris on why we need to keep PISA results very much in perspective. Uh, former West Midlands head Anne Cole talks about the grinding effects of poverty now that she's working with a food bank uh, near Birmingham. She talks about how food banks work. Then there's Professor Rob Coe, an expert in terms of teacher observation, reminding us why teacher observation is unreliable for making judgments about teaching, but important for teachers to improve their own teaching. Next, I talk to the Chief Inspector in Scotland, Gail Gorman, on why Scottish heads really aren't fearful of inspection and how inspection works there to improve education. Next, there's a keynote speaker from our forthcoming national conference in March 2020, Matthew Syed, on why more diverse leadership teams make better decisions. Next, you hear from head teacher Cherry Tingle on leading an outstanding University Technical College, UTC, in Cumbria. Next, another conference speaker for next year's annual conference, it's Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, who talks a little bit about her life as a chief fire officer, but in particular shows us the extraordinary past she had, where by night she was living on the streets, uh, by day it was the school that was her salvation. She has an amazing story to tell. And finally, another extraordinary story, former primary head teacher Pat Sower, on her mission to talk publicly about mental health based on what happened to her son, Dom. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, Professor Alma Harris, University of Swansea. Uh, and we're here in Cardiff today where you've been talking about the PISA test and I think it's fair to say you're not entirely convinced that the PISA test necessarily is as illuminating as some politicians would tell us. You talk us through it. I think that the, the PISA test tells us some things but not everything. I think it's uh, a test, not the test. And I think we need to put PISA in its place in terms of understanding what it can tell us and what it can't tell us. There are huge issues around uh, emotional well-being, mental health in schools, and PISA can't help with that. So it's about recognising that the PISA test is only one measure, there are other measures, and maybe it's not the most important measure. And when you talk about the things it doesn't assess which are important, I mean, you made a very powerful point around that. What are the kinds of things? The kinds of things it doesn't measure. I mean, issues of emotional health, uh, well-being, mental health, um, is a whole range of uh, areas in which education touches that it just cannot and does not measure. And I guess by default there's an assumption that therefore those things are less important than PISA because PISA's got a huge profile. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, PISA is influential with policymakers because it's a, it's a global test and therefore they, they, they can't ignore it. But at the same time, I think it's, uh, it's important that we see that test in context and understand that it can tell us certain things but not, not everything. Um, so, so PISA, I think, in the future will become less important as the issue of equity and mental health and, and student well-being becomes more important. And maybe we need measures of that rather than measures of attainment. And um, finally, essentially, at the beginning of December, PISA will come out. And for Wales, uh, you're already saying we need to hold our nerve here. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why, that's because we're in the middle of a very ambitious reform and time is being given to that reform and the risk is that politicians kind of buckle and, and, and rush for quick fixes. Is that the, the sense of it? Yes, there, there is a, a set of precedents where you see policymakers simply doing U-turns on, on particular strategies because of PISA and being highly influenced by what PISA can or cannot tell us. 
And my view is that within context, we should stay with the reforms that we have, particularly in Wales, stay with the curriculum reform, which is hugely transformational and which the profession has spent a huge amount of time in, in, in co-constructing, and not be derailed by PISA. That's the big message. Listen to the results, absolutely. Learn from the results, of course, but let's not be derailed by those results so that we go off in a completely different policy direction. Professor Alma Harris, thank you. So my name's Anne Cole. I'm a retired head teacher from an inner city comprehensive in Birmingham. Yeah, how long were you head? Uh, 17 years, don't remind me. And I loved every minute of it. <laughs> so it was tough giving it up, was it? Very tough, yes. But yes. now you've got a different role, and it's interesting. I was in Manchester yesterday where somebody talked about food poverty. I'm here today in Birmingham. The same issue came, came up. You've got insights into this because you know about food banks. Can you kind of talk, talk me through what we ought to know? Yes, so the headlines are, I'm a volunteer, I do two days a week um, at one of the Trussell Trust Birmingham food banks. There are about 15 food banks across the city. Mine, uh, the one that I do, B30, is the south of the city. It's by no means the most impoverished area. Um, so the Trussell Trust food bank um, offers three days emergency food to clients who are referred to us. There is um, a misconception that people sort of turn up at a food bank yeah, instead I'm, of going I, to I think I thought that. Yeah. yeah. So who, who does the referring? Okay, so we are, we're in partnership with various, that we call um, our partners voucher holders, and they assess very needy clients, I'll tell you who they, they, they are, um, and they refer their clients to us. So it could be um, social workers, schools, the neighbourhood office, various charities, all sorts of people, homeless charities, housing associations, um, all sorts of people. Uh, and they refer their clients to us by giving them one of our vouchers. So people come whole clutching a voucher. Um, and that will uh, make them eligible for three days emergency food. It's long life food because that's we haven't got the facilities to mm. to store fresh food. Um, and they they can have three vouchers in six months. Um, after if they use more than three vouchers, uh, they would need to be reassessed. So we would help people after the third time. And in the current times, with various complexities of benefit delays and problems with universal credit, is becoming increasingly the case. So the sorts of people that are referred to us are probably what you're interested in. And um, so I can tell you that these are some of the people that I have dealt with personally in the last uh, three or four months. So most people who come for the first time are absolutely mortified, embarrassed and ashamed to be there. So they have to be reassured and they're welcome in, they're given a cup of tea or coffee. Um, so for instance, I had a mum in September who said, I'm so ashamed to be here. I've bought my two kids shoes, but I can't afford to feed us. I've just about run out of food for the kids. Um, people see my kids have got shoes, but they don't see I'm hungry. You know, what can you say? Um, uh, another child came in uh, a few months ago. He was about five, end of the day, after school, came in. He had come from being collected from his school. An irony of ironies, he was wearing a Children in Need T-shirt that he'd been raising funds with all day. And there he was in the food bank with his mum, who was actually just um, uh, living in a hostel. 
and was uh, finding ends, you know, finding it difficult. So families escaping domestic violence, people who've been sanctioned by the job centre because everything's online and not everybody has access to IT. Universal credit is the main reason that people come to us because there's a five-week wait, at least five weeks. I don't know what people are supposed to do for five weeks with no money, but... Um, people on zero hours contract I had a man crying to me that he needed more work but there just wasn't any more work and also um, more recently um, I had a victim of modern slavery he was from an Eastern European country he had no resources the, um, the traffickers had been caught but he'd been asked to stay in the country for six months for, to be a witness but he'd got no recourse to um, public funds so he was stuck we did sort him out but and then just yesterday, I had a homeless woman um, who was thrilled that she'd got two bags of food and she was desperate to tell me that she was so pleased that she'd got a garage with a kettle and a socket in it so I could give her stuff that needed hot water in it because she'd got somewhere with uh, electricity that night. We didn't manage to refer her to... That's unthinkable. So it's not just food. Um, so the biggest reason at the moment that people have come to us is problems with universal credit and benefit delays because it's all online and of course these people are themselves not always be able to access mm. um, technology you know they haven't got emails or computers or whatever um, and one of the things Jeff that you'll be particularly interested in is the place of schools in all this yeah. because um, schools a number of our schools are voucher holders so they refer um, parents to us who are in desperate need um, we had a deputy head of company um, a parent in um, because the mum didn't want to come you know to reassure her so the deputy head was taking time out after school to accompany we've had teaching assistants bring homeschool liaison workers bring their kids in but schools are great also because they do the other end which is they're very generous in collecting donating food to us um, um, so they refer clients to us, um, they collect and they contribute. But the other thing that food bank can offer to the school is that we will contribute to the PSE assembly and the citizenship programme, and we do assemblies. Yeah. And, so and in a sense, it's a two-way Because what you've done even in this conversation is you've demythologised a lot. I mean, well, I hope so. You know, in, in the sense that I think that... I mean, there's, there's two things. One, one is you've talked about those people and the... You know the the attack on their dignity and the, and how how much they sense that by coming, but also I think that the easy assumption that there are food banks and people just go and kind of turn up and help themselves to what they want it's to not and the you, case it's not the case. No. And we're seeing um, so yesterday afternoon we saw fifty people with vouchers in two hours. Wow. Um, and running up to Christmas, that could be anything up to 90 in an afternoon. How, how but, that's multi but that's multiplied by the number of people in their families. So that's, yeah. that's just the vouchers. That's not the number of people. So in South Birmingham, we're probably feeding about uh, 200 people a week. And of course, there's a big demand on us collecting food. So it's quite a big operation. So there are uh, 18 branches of Trussell Trust food banks but there are a number of independent food banks as well and that's beside people who offer hot cooked meals increasingly churches and youth clubs etc are offering hot cooked meals once a week and the outreach food for the homeless 
So it's a pretty grim picture. It's totally grim. Thank, thank you for explaining. Okay, my name is Rob Coe. I work for Evidence-Based Education and formerly Professor of Education at Durham and a maths teacher before that. Um, Evidence-Based Education, tell us uh, what you do. Okay, so it's a small startup based in the northeast of England, Sunderland, and we mainly do training and support for schools in using research evidence, which is focused on um, helping them to improve. Now, a number of years ago, Robin, in a previous role, you put a grenade under the education system a little bit by essentially raising a huge question about a prevailing orthodoxy, which was that it was possible to go in and watch a teacher teach and you'd be able to grade the quality of it. Tell us what we now know about what we were doing then. Uh, Well, I think we knew then, actually. I'm, I'm not sure there's massive amounts of new knowledge but if you look at the evidence about the reliability and validity of those kinds of observation processes, so the, you know, the practical question is, if two people watch the same lesson, do they agree about those kind of scorings or ratings or judgments? Um, if they do agree, does that correspond with what we know about whether students are learning, for example? So they might like the lesson, think it's fabulous, but actually that doesn't correspond with, with the classes where students are actually learning more. And the evidence about both of those questions is that, yes, a bit. So if you get a high rating judgment, chances are there's a bit more learning, but often it's not much more. And do two people agree? Well, again, um, not, not very accurately is the answer. And that's fine if you treat those kinds of judgments and ratings with appropriate caution. But if you attach some kind of consequences to them, like, say, uh, performance management processes sometimes do, capability processes sometimes based on observation, or even if it's just general improvement processes about, you know, people need to work on stuff, um, quite often they're, they're misplaced. You know, you make the wrong judgments, and where the consequences are, you know, a pay rise or, or being sacked... Well, that really matters, and so um, we, we should be much more cautious about how we use these things. Yeah, I always remember John West Burnham saying you can walk into any school and you can see uh, examples of great teaching and yeah. examples of great learning, and just occasionally it's in the same classroom. Yeah. That's, that's essentially what you were saying there, isn't it? So, and none of that is saying that, it's ro- that, that we are misguided in going and watching other people teaching. No. But we're going to do that for different reasons. Yes, I think, that, I think that's a really difficult one because if you say, oh, be careful about this observation thing, mm, you know, don't do it, then as a school leader or if you're working for the inspectorate or those kinds of things, um, that kind of pulls the rug right from underneath you. What are you going to do? As a school leader, I would want to, to be in classrooms and watch people teaching. But I would be very cautious about making judgments about the quality of teaching or particularly the quality of the teacher, which I think are two slightly different things, uh, particularly when it was outside my, my own specialist expertise. You know, I know I was a maths teacher, I know a bit, I've done research on maths education, I know a little bit about some of those practices. If I go into an early years classroom, or even a history cl- secondary history classroom, or something a bit different from what I'm used to, then I'm less well equipped to make those judgments. And um, also there are, there are some things that seem to matter and some things that don't. And it's very, when you, when you watch a classroom and a teacher, it's very uh, hard not to have a, an emotional reaction to that. You know, that feels right. That we, often we project our own style onto it. We think, oh yeah, that's how I would do it. Or no, that's not how I would do it. 
And I think those, those kinds of emotional reactions are often not very helpful, that they lead us to make judgments. We're really sure about those judgments because they kind of come from the gut. Mm. Um, but I think they're quite often wrong, actually. And that's um, part of the, I think the important message is just to, um, to challenge people on that. You know, actually you make these judgments, you're pretty sure about them, you're wrong. <laughs> and then, you know, okay, well, so what does that mean? And we start to th really think hard about, well, what, what is good teaching then? Um, can we break it down? Do we know it when we see it? And I think in, in uh, coming back to your question, you know, should we use observation? The answer is yes, but I think use it very much as a, um, as a way of helping people to work on very specific skills. Yes, I get that. I, I used to, have, uh, as a teacher and as a senior leader, be obsessed with questioning. It used to seem yeah. to me that questioning was a, a key tool that great yeah. teachers used. Yeah. And you often saw questioning being done badly. But the trouble was, yeah. if, you, if you said to someone, why don't you go and watch Teacher X, they're great at questioning, quite often what they do is to come out saying, yes, that's what I do. Yes. And so people see what people want yeah, to see, in do. a sense. Yeah, and and it, yeah, I, I yeah. find it most useful to take it out of performance management altogether and essentially to say, let's go in as a pair of people yeah. so that we're both watching that, and then we have a conversation okay. with that person. Yes. So it's kind I, yeah. of it's bedded in more to yeah. how might I improve my practice in yes. key areas or something yes, like that. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I was in a, uh, watching a really fabulous lesson uh, just the other week, which... Um, uh, the teacher was just using the register and said, instead of uh, saying yes or whatever, yes, miss, I want you to call out the name of your favourite uh, character from A Christmas Carol. <laughs> so, you know, they had all the characters come out. And then she just came back and said, well, you know, why? You chose Scrooge. He's a, a mean old miser. Why did you choose Scrooge? And the, com the, the, the discussion that came out of that was fabulous. Yeah. Now, um, I know a bit about questioning, you know, if a child says that this is how I'd factorise that quadratic, um, I can ask good questions about that. I can't do that in relation to A Christmas Carol. I just don't know the text well enough. I don't know the skills that you're trying to teach and so on. So, and partly because I can't do it, I couldn't demonstrate it. And I also probably not well equipped to spot it either. I mean, that felt good to me because it, it just seemed to get some good thinking going. Um, but I do think it's a really specialist thing. And that teacher might be good at certain types of questioning and not good at others. Um, you know, so it's a really um, quite a specific set of skills that are very related to the particular topic, that maybe the particular text in that case, um, and and it's something you can learn. You know, you can get better at doing it. So I'm a big fan of teachers recording video of themselves and sharing short excerpts of that video with another colleague who is expert at the thing they were trying to do in that lesson, who might or might not be a senior leader, probably isn't, um, but you know, they've seen another teacher do that, that questioning really well, and so they think, well, here's me having a go, can we watch this together, and can you tell me what you think, you know, how could I have improved this? And those kinds of conversations, when I've seen that happening, that seems really productive. So that's using observation, but nobody's making a global judgment in that process, and it's very granular, it's very focused on a very specific skill in relation to a, uh, a very specific topic even, or, or text in this case. Professor Robko, thank you. Thank you. I'm Gail Gorman, Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Education in Scotland and Chief Executive of Education Scotland. And just explain that, because uh, 
the, those people listening in England will think, well, the chief inspector is the chief inspector and that's what she does. You've got this dual role. Can you explain it? Yeah, so we, as well as uh, inspection, which is part of our scrutiny team, we have a support side as well. So we have curriculum teams, regional support teams and uh, colleagues who work supporting individual teachers in schools across Scotland. You said something, you said a number of things yesterday. One of the things you said is, um, in terms of inspection, it's not as high stakes. Heads will not lose their jobs because of inspection. Can you describe how inspection works? So, um, inspection here has evolved over over time, but it's um, moving. We have a quality improvement framework, um, How Good Is Our School, that has a series of quality improvement indicators, similar to the framework in England. Um, and schools have choice. We have some core QIs and we have choice. So schools choose a couple of QIs that they want uh, our teams to focus on. We also work in partnership with associate assessors who are practising teachers and head teachers. They're part of the team. And so we go in and schools have self-evaluated and we have a professional dialogue about the journey that school's on of course, being looking at data, looking at improvement, and then at the end of that, we have um, a professional dialogue and a conversation that leads to a report. But it's very much done in partnership with schools, um, and there's no overall grade that comes out at the end of it. And it's about recognising the the journey of improvement that schools are on. And would inspectors, when they're in the school, be looking at the teaching? Yes, yeah, of course. I mean, we're fundamentally interested in learning and teaching. But would they grade? No, we lessons? don't grade lessons, no. So, so what are they kind of looking at when they're watching this? So we're looking at um, the quality of learning and teaching. We're looking particularly at the children's outcomes. What are the young people's outcomes? What's the learning that's taken place during that? And how does that represent the other body of evidence, the young people themselves and what they can do and articulate and their behaviours, and also the, the written work and evidence that the school has? And if I was a, a head teacher in Scotland um, and you were coming to inspect, your team was coming to inspect how long ahead of the, the inspection would I know about it? Uh, so we do formal notification um, a number of weeks in advance um, we have some short, we're trialling different models so we've got some short notice inspections but predominantly you know, a few weeks um, that schools will have um, notification but again we, we kind of do that in partnership with local authorities and we make sure the school there's no contra conditions happening in the school that would make that challenging. And is the report finally published and so do parents see it, does the local media get hold of it? Yeah, so the report is published. We also do a letter to parents that comes from Education Scotland uh, that outlines the successes of the school and the areas for development um, and those are published. They are picked up by local media um, uh, usually celebrating the, the best performance and what's mm-hmm. happened but it's not really the same high stakes and coverage that there is in, in the system south of the border uh, One last area I just want to talk about you said yesterday when you kind of pointed at Billy Burke who's been president for last year and said the education system in Scotland traditionally has done well for children like you and Billy came from a uh, fairly deprived background but was a bright young man he did well through the education system and you said it's worked well for the bright it needs to work well for everyone we've heard this huge emphasis on excellence and equity what is it that Scotland's trying to do to address that then? So really um, fundamentally focus on um raising the bar for all of Scotland's children and really focusing in on the quality of experience so what's the curriculum and how does that curriculum that we offer 
engage all young people, not just those who are academically more able. So the range of qualifications, the range of different pathways, the journey, the, the range of professionals that work in a Scottish school to engage with our young people and make sure we're offering a 21st century curriculum, that's really the difference we're trying to make. And through that we hope to address the poverty-related attainment gap and there's specific national funding to help do that as well. And there's this a feeling, I heard it from John Swinney actually just speaking this morning, Deputy First Minister, you, you want to produce the citizens for the future. There is that sense that it isn't just about qualifications. It's much deeper than that, isn't it? I think that's that's something that's kind of part of Scottish culture and society, is actually that we believe in, in creating rounded young people for a, a stronger country of the future and so very much at the heart of our curriculum are what we call the four capacities which are about citizenship, about um, responsibility, about accountability and and social interaction with others. Those are at the heart of Scottish education and we do put that first and that creates um, eloquent, um, bright, wonderful young people from the Scottish education system. Gail Gorman, thank you. I'm Matthew Side. I'm the author of Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking. And uh, uh, diversity and leadership is what we're going to be talking at our conference next March, which you're going to be a keynote speaker at. You've got this terrific book. Just tell us about the book. So it's called Rebel Ideas, and it's about diversity, but not the way we typically think about diversity in demographic terms, race, gender, social class. It's about cognitive diversity, differences in the way people think, the different insights and perspectives they can bring. There's obviously an overlap between these two things. Often your experiences will inform the way you think about the world. But I think it's important not to have diversity as a box-ticking exercise. I think it can be a lot more powerful than that. Why do you think that matters, particularly in leadership in education? Because... All of us, I think, are attracted to people who think rather like us. It validates our worldview. It makes us feel smarter. So there is an unconscious tendency to surround oneself with people who are saying things that what one already knows. And that really shuts down the collective intelligence, particularly in a space which is complex or um, where innovation is important. When you're surrounded by like-minded people, you lose the creative tension and friction that can be so important for coming up with new ideas and doing the thing that colleges and schools want to do, which is equip their students with the knowledge and the skills that they need to embrace the world. Winston Churchill once said that head teachers have more power than the British Prime Minister, and yet, when you look at particularly the English education system, it often feels pretty compliant. Um, and I think what you're kind of hinting at is an opportunity to have a bit more of a sense of uh, asking bigger questions, looking more boldly towards the future. And you won't go that if you <coughs> if you create a compliant culture in your leadership group. Well, I think it's always a good idea to do the things that have been historically validated as working effectively. Best practice. So the implementation of best practice makes a lot of sense. But one should always think of it as best so far. One can get better. One can improve on best practice. So leaders thinking of themselves as having the discretionary space to come up with new ideas, to try new things, to leverage cognitive diversity, I think is incredibly important. Because if you only think about leadership as compliance, as box ticking, it's never going to work. Really looking forward to seeing you in March next year. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Cherry Tingle, Principal and Chief Exec of Energy Coast UTC Trust. Tell us a little bit about the UTC then. 
So Energy Coast UTC is up in the northwest of Cumbria in the beautiful Lake District, right on the edge, and serves the communities of Workington, Whitehaven and the surrounding areas. So a real mix of very rural areas and town areas um, on the coast. And for people who don't re- really understand what a UTC is, or I've seen negative stuff about UTCs, kind of talk us through the concept. So the concept is that um, UTCs are schools for 14 to 19 year old students and I always say we do some things the same as a school, a regular school and some things that are completely different. So the things we do that are the same are GCSEs, A-levels etc and we have high academic expectations in those areas. The things we do different are very different so we work very very closely with employers from when students start with us age 14. So they will spend at least two hours a week from age 14 right up to 18 or 19 working down directly with an employer on a real-life employer project. They also spend 40% of their curriculum at um, GCSE ages and 60% of their curriculum in the sixth form studying practical technical qualifications. They take qualifications in those but they learn the skills in those and they're learning them in a direct way by working with employers. So I'll give you an example. Our year 10 and 11 students study GCSE, English, Maths and Sciences as they would anywhere else. That's the bit that's the same. Um, They also then study something called performing engineering operations. So those used to be apprenticeship units, and they're what our local employers tell us are needed for skills gaps. They study BTEC engineering, and they study something called design engineer construct, which is digital engineering, learning cyber security skills, learning how to digitally design things that are going to be engineered in the future. They work with employers while they're doing that, and then they go all over the country. So they just had a group of students working on the Tideway Tunnels underneath the Thames. They've been down there working, planning some of those things going on down there, and then presenting to leaders of industry about them. They all have extended work experience as well, for varying lengths of time, anything between three weeks a year as a minimum, right up to 50 days a year. And that's planned into their curriculum, again, from age 14 right up to 19. And that works. Those employers are in. They're in in every day. So I've lost track of the number of people who say to me, you know that apprenticeship interview I just went for, miss? Um, That's the guy who's in here every day. Uh, And they see that, you know. And, And my bottom line about school, I've been a school leader before, is about it's got to be good enough for my child. But the extra expectation around a UTC is that the expectation is if behaviour, about effort put into work, is as if you were at work. If it wouldn't be okay in a workplace, it isn't okay at school. And how, how do you judge how well your young people do? Because you're not subject to the traditional performance tables and all that, I suppose, are you? Um, no, we're not. Um, sometimes the press still tries to publish things like Progress 8, but, you know, our young people start with age 14, so it's not a relevant measure. No. So we baseline our students when they start, and we measure the amount of progress they make from 14 to 16, and then from 16 to 18. So we measure that in terms of academic progress, and our students make an average three grades progress across year 10 and 11, which is pretty exceptional Um, but we also measure destinations as well Um, so 90 percent nine zero percent of our students for example last year went into apprenticeships and that compares to it varies slightly up and down the country but between 10 and 12 percent nationally depending on where you are Um, so that's massive Um, and of those apprenticeships a large percentage of our students are going into level four or level five apprenticeships or degree apprenticeships so that's really important too 
And the other thing we measure is something we teach that's also another difference to a school. We measure employability skills and how our young people develop those. And that's really interesting. So we assess our students on where are they with resilience? Where are they with leadership? Where are they being an effective member of a team? And we teach those skills explicitly rather than implicitly, which we also do through subjects. And then we measure students' um, performance in developing those skills. And again, working with employers. And when you look at the CBI reports, those are the things that say help people get jobs and keep jobs once they're in them. If they know how to be resilient, if they know that they're trying to do something and it doesn't work, they don't give up. They keep trying or they do it another way. Just one last question. The, uh, a, a characteristic of the English education system is that we've always had this kind of mismatch between talking about the academic and then we talk about technical skills and various ministers play around with different things. The, the UTC principle was always one that people thought, right, this would do something about the issue of actually giving status to technical education, right? But because it was around 14 to 18 and our system traditionally has been 11 to 16, the question was, well, how do those children come from those other schools, you know, and does that set you in competition with other schools? How, how do you work um, in, in the educational landscape? Uh, and that potentially is problematic because students start with us at age 14 um, and that can mean a couple of different things. It can mean some of the local schools don't want the kids who they think are going to achieve well in their performance tables to come to us. It can mean that they're very keen for some of their students who don't attend or they don't think will do well to come to us. I don't mind that. Um, for me, it's about, you know, I'm based in the northwest of Cumbria and it's about making sure that the northwest of Cumbria education system improves and serves our children better. So I want to work with local schools to help them make that happen and develop our expertise in the region across that. But it is difficult. Do I mind having some kids who haven't been terribly successful at their previous school? Absolutely not. Give them another chance, 100%. And some of our most successful students are those. You know, our free school meals percentage is in the high 40s. Um, and some of the best progress that we make, our progress for disadvantaged students is almost as high, um, very, very close to the progress for our non-disadvantaged students. So we'll give them another chance. But it is problematic. And certainly the UTC movement as a whole is looking at um, developing UTCs going forward to include a key stage which is rightly broad in its curriculum mm. and then focuses increasingly as you move through the school on STEM, employer engagement, employability skills, etc. Cherry, thank you very much. Thank you. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton and I'm a Chief Fire Officer and a Psychologist. And you're coming to speak at our conference in March, so we're very excited about that. Now, that psychology part of that, I mean, it sounds to me as if one of the things you've done as somebody who I think it's fair to say had a pretty checkered educational background at school for reasons we might talk about, um, but you then went on and did a PhD. And so you take a kind of analytical approach to the fire service, which is you know, dealing with really difficult things. So what, what, what is that psychological side? Yeah, so I had some personal experience where someone close to me was um, very nearly killed at an incident. Um, and so that made me want to understand how we can pe make people safer, effectively. And what I discovered is the majority of the time when people are injured in the fire service, it's as a result of human error. So it was important to me to try to understand that human error so we could reduce it. Um, and actually what we found when we started to unpick this data was that Again, 80% of the time, the kind of decisions people were making were very intuitive gut decisions 
and not analytical decisions as one might imagine. But actually, when you look at the policies and the procedures and the protocols, they're all very focused on an analytical decision. So we needed to readdress that balance so that we were training people in a way that complements the way that they were actually thinking. Um, and by doing that, what we found when we started to introduce some new techniques was that we could raise people's levels of situational awareness to the highest level up to five times more often when they were using these techniques and they weren't. So they were projecting, they were thinking about what might happen and they were becoming more goal-directed. They were more focused on what it was they were trying to achieve rather than just responding to a piece of the situation. So it was incredibly effective. So there you were uh, working for the fire service, doing your PhD uh, in the early hours, in the margins of the day. Th that probably surprises your older self, if you look back to your younger self, because I think it's fair to say you had an incredibly challenging time from the age of kind of 14 onwards. Uh, and school was important to you, and you, you will be speaking to a thousand or so school leaders, reminding us that children may be coming into school from quite turbulent home lives. Can you just describe yours just br briefly? Yeah, of course. My father died when I was nine years old and my mother suffered terribly with her mental health um, to the point where she deteriorated quite considerably. Um, and as a young person, when you are still trying to go to school and trying to um, fulfill the aspirations, if you like, and the expectations that are placed upon you, not just from those around you, but by school teachers themselves. They want you to come into school and give your best. But actually, if you're dealing with something like the mental health of a caregiver, if you're living in poverty, if you're going into school and you're hungry and you're cold, if you're going into school and you're being bullied because your clothes are dirty because you've got nowhere to wash them, when you add on the additional pressure of the expectation to perform, that can be really, really tough. And uh, there was a time that you were, you were homeless, weren't you? you were living on the streets, and yet changing into your school uniform, going to school, where people, what, were they aware that you were living on the streets? Uh, I think some were, towards, certainly towards the latter part, yeah. Um, one of my teachers saw me selling the big issue and crossed the street to avoid me. Um, so I'm pretty certain that people knew the situation. But actually, there's another point to this. This was real life before the Children's Act of 2004. Um, we had a social worker. We, there were so many signs in school that we were, we were struggling. There were signs with other public agencies as well. But actually, because no one was sharing information, that picture, all of the dots were there, but they were never joined up mm. to make that picture. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, for, for, for my family, we were one of those families that fell through the cracks. Um, and it was an incredibly difficult time. And I, I hope that now, with more awareness, more supporting legislation, that that would be less likely to happen today than it was back then. But I think we could all challenge ourselves and ask, we might be certain that it would be less likely to happen, but are we certain that it would never happen? And what can we all do every single day to keep an eye open for those signs and pick up on them? Uh, it's an extraordinary story. Look forward to seeing you at conference in March. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you so much. I'm Pat Sower. And tell us what you do, Pat. I work now speaking, training and writing about mental health and wellbeing in schools. I've heard you a number of times. We're here in Cardiff and you've just talked to uh, a group of senior leaders, lots of head teachers here, and you talk about mental health. Now, there's a problem with talking about mental health, it seems to me, because it's, it's such a broad brush term. It means everything from somebody who's getting up feeling slightly anxious to something much more serious. 
you talk about the seriousness of it and you talk about it from a personal point of view. Tell us about Dom. Okay, so Dom was a lovely lad, and I would say that because I'm his mum. But he was always sensitive, highly intelligent, arty and creative. He loved music, he was an artist, and English literature was his favourite subject in school. And he went through school absolutely skipping, literally, uh, until about the age of eight. And then the world started to apply its uh, rules and strictures around him. And I think because he was very socially sensitive, he noticed that. So he started to adapt, as probably all of us do. And as he moved into his teenage years, there was literally almost like a switch that flicked in him as he hit adolescence at about the age of 14. And that combined with him coming out as gay, but he was definitely went into his adolescent phase. So if I think of him as like a sunflower, his face turned towards his friends and away from his family a bit, um, which I'm sure all teachers in year eight and nine would recognize. And then he went through a very difficult phase where he came out and it went really well, but he started to get bullied. So you mentioned mental health and what I talk about, which is really better defined as mental illness. So we all have mental health, good days, bad days, stressed days, tired days, brains, days when the brain doesn't work. Um, But sometimes that flips over into a more intense illness, which starts to dominate. And that's (coughs) what was happening to Dom. And whether, I I, I genuinely don't know whether that predisposition was there and just got exacerbated by the bullying or whether the bullying triggered it. Um, But but he ended up dealing with some very serious mental health issues. And one of the things I've learned since he died is that it's a spectrum of things. So we talk about anxiety and I was anxious before I spoke just now. But that anxiety is a natural response and stimulus and it went away after I'd finished but for Dom he was living with constant anxiety uh, all was on red alert and that's when it becomes an illness and that's when it starts to really affect your life and I think one of the useful ways to think about mental illness and in Dom's case I wish I'd known this is the effect it's having on your daily life how much are you able to fulfill your potential in the sense of engaging with life still going to your saxophone band Dom you know are you still singing are you still drawing are you still going out with your friends and when I look backwards now I realize that he'd withdrawn from an awful lot of those things and one thing at a time they went away and everybody kept saying to me that's what teenagers do they reform they drop the hobbies that you dutifully drove them to for years and then they find new ones and I think unfortunately for Dom because of the complexity of the illness that he had um, that withdrawal meant that he became very isolated and vulnerable. And the people listening to you both here in Cardiff but also on this podcast will be people who are working in schools and in colleges and I think the powerful message you're giving is that we play a very significant role in this. Let's just go back to something you said a second ago. So Dom came out And what you said is that in the early days that went well and then it started toppling over into pretty nasty, vicious, old-style bullying, as I understand it. Would would you just help us talk about that? Because that will give a, a way into what is it which we have a responsibility to try and do in terms of the culture in our schools and colleges. Yeah. So do you want me to talk about what actually happened to him? So 
he started to be physically bullied, so pushed up against the wall in corridors, jostled. A teacher might not even notice that kind of jostle, depending on what kind of school it is, but he felt physically threatened, so would be pushed up against the walls. Um, people shouted at him old, old bullying names like faggot and puff. Um, and because he was sensitive, that, that went in. So whereas somebody else might brush it off, it didn't. A lot of it was under the radar with teachers, so his two worst places were the games changing room where there were no teachers and going in and out of assembly where the teachers couldn't hear what was being said. Um, that was the main part of the bullying. He was, nobody would pair with him in games, so he started to miss games. But interestingly, from a teacher perspective, I can remember in year eight, his teacher saying to him at parents' evening, but Dom, you just really haven't made progress this year. And he came away from that teacher's evening and cried and said, I've done my best. So I think for teachers, it's remembering that actually bullying still goes on. It's, it's not solved just because we've got a policy on it. We have to be really alert to it and sensitive to the young people's interpretation of their feelings. Don might have been super sensitive to bullying um, because of his mental health, but that didn't mean that we didn't have a responsibility as teachers to try and help him with that. And if I could wave a wand back at those teachers, I'd say, maybe we should have got him some counselling at that point. Maybe he should have been put into a support group. And then the second part was around the, the fact that he was gay. And I think I underestimated how much homophobia is still out there. And that's why I'm really passionate about us overtly supporting people with any sense of difference or otherness, so that they feel overtly welcomed. Because I think if you're in a position of being in the, in the white middle-class role that I'm in, it's really hard to understand how isolating it is if your group doesn't feel like it's welcomed at the door. You uh, open your talk by saying you're a member of a club that nobody wants to be part of, yeah. but that what you want to do is to at least, I can't remember quite how you put it, what, what, what's the phrase you use? Um, I want to um, make sure that I scrape a victory out of this rather than becoming a victim of it. So scraping some kind of meaning, not that Dom died for a purpose, but that trying to make sure it doesn't happen to other people. And taking what I've learnt so that as I talk about Dom, teachers can think about what's happening in their own schools and just scan for the children who are more vulnerable. There's, t there's children who are shying away from having a relationship with the teachers might be the very children that need it most. Pat Sower, thank you. Thank you. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.